Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Sif Heider, the founder of Array. I'm a wellness entrepreneur and digital creator, and this is my show, The Dream Bigger Podcast. Listen, I love dreaming big, but you know what I love more? Actually having the resources to make those big dreams happen. And hey, dreams can sometimes be private jets, but other times they can look a little something like having the best skin of your damn life or starting a successful business or delving into spirituality. So on this podcast, I chat with experts and thought leaders from different fields about their tips and tricks on doing exactly that. Remember to subscribe. We drop new episodes every Tuesday. So see you then. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan. And happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Thursday of the day. The best day of the week. Clearly. (laughs) Here we are. If you don't hear from us, then that's a horrible day. Oh, my God. Wait, <laughs> wait. No, no, no. But could y'all imagine if one day, like, there just wasn't an episode? And we just never told There was them. just nothing. Like, we just did nothing. Y'all would literally call the police. That would be the best week of my life. I mean, yeah. It would, <laughs> it would be It would be the best week of your life. But I would probably be dead. Oh, my God. If that you was losing your mind. No, no. I Like, there's no reason. Oh, you wouldn't. Yeah, you're right. You wouldn't be alive. Yeah, there's no reason. Like, I, I would have to be, like, seriously in a bad way injured in a hospital like big emergency yeah but for us to not have an episode my first concern would be to let you guys know she would be wake up from her coma <laughs> just to say i wake up 50 years Morgan, from now i'm like an announcement did we miss an episode <laughs> and you're like yeah you missed in 1900 <laughs> yeah you did it's all good though it's all good though they they understood i i'm like you're did like, you ever get on like, the mic you didn't carry it out I'm like, not once. <laughs> not once. I didn't even get on to update them. I didn't even send the episode we had pre-recorded. <laughs> I didn't do fucking jack shit. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, my God, we'll bring a fucking microphone in Meanwhile, here. if I was in the coma, Taylor would still be pulling out episodes. Oh, baby. This w- one's in honor of Morgan. Week <laughs> 17. Week 17. No, the way that I would I would take a week or so off. And then after that, I'd be like, I got to get on there. I got I to gotta talk to the people. I got to let them know. I would maybe do two weeks and just like, I would definitely make an announcement I mean I'd probably yeah. do a wrap up app yeah a wrap just, up app you just assume I'm gonna die you wouldn't just until like until you woke up find someone what to, am I supposed to do talk to the wall I can't do it you know no no you it. would have to bring someone on you know nothing would get done if it wasn't if you weren't texting me I would I would literally have no notes no notes I would just sit <laughs> the there schedule. and be like hey guys you would just get notifications from our google calendar 
every single for day. the next year. Yeah, you'd be like, no, I gotta, I gotta booked out for deletes Google Calendar app. No, yeah, honestly, just delete the entire account <laughs> if that happens because for the rest of time you won't oh, be. Oh shit! I mean, like you know where you can set it to where it's like remind me every day on this month. I have that. But I also feel like part of me like may have just like kicked into gear and be like, I have to do this. I for have Taylor. to do this for Taylor. She, this is what she, she would, want. would want me to do this. Yeah, you would. I know. And if you didn't, I'd be like in Susan's ear <laughs> and Susan would be harassing you for me. You would be in my ear. Yeah. You joking. I would have nightmares. No, I would be. I would be. You would be coming out Ollie. as a tiki tiki in my nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> I would, you'd go to the bathroom. I'd just be sitting there. You'd be like, like what? what? I would like mess with all of the stuff that you get in the lab. Type my name on everything. Yeah. Oh, listen to this. So we have benches, you know, at work, right? And right. I'm on one specific bench, like often, like more so than other times. Mm -hmm. Like that's my bench. That's where I train the most at. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's where I live. Okay. Like right. Mine. Mine. I'm sitting there today. I have used this stapler nineteen thousand fucking times okay. in my life or in the last year. Okay. <laughs> Never once noticed this. I haven't worn my 444 necklace in probably, I would say, about a month and a half. I'm sitting there and the stapler just catches the light and I see engraved 444. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? No. I jump up. So people like out all, every time they ask, they like mess with me about my necklace because yeah. they, they don't understand it. They're yeah. like, what does that mean? Like you 666? Like that Yeah, lot. that's exactly what it is. And so I ran, I sprinted over there. I said, you don't have not had my necklace on. I said, look, this is this. This is why this is why I wear it. This right here. This right fucking here. It shows up. And like, I mean, I for a year and a half, I've never noticed it. You that never been, noticed this it. This stapler is like so heavy, you, it's gotta be 20 years old. Like yeah. that thing has lived it on that murder bench somebody for a very long yeah. time. I have never noticed it, dude. That's crazy. Engraved right in the very front, like right where I'd be pushing down four, four, four. That's insane. And it's, I bet it's model been number. like literally put into your hand from you pushing it yeah. down so many times and you just never noticed it. Yep. So guys, what's really crazy is last night, me and Morgan are on the phone and we're like kind of having a crisis over nothing like that Why serious. Why am I blacking out? What did we talk about? Oh, okay. Yeah, we're trying to work out some like plans for... Some stuff that we have to do, long story short. And we're both basically trying to back out, like, but not at the same time. We're just questioning ourselves. And that's really not like us as a unit to do ever. Like, very rarely does that happen. But yesterday, I feel like the imposter syndrome that we've been fighting has really caught up to us and we just feel crazy. Yeah. So like, I... I stopped at one point i said taylor i'm scared yeah <laughs> yeah and i looked at her and i was like Me i'm too, scared dude. too i don't want to do it. i don't think i can and then we were like we're just so comfortable in our little hole and then that triggered me the word comfortable like immediately triggers me i'm like no do we want to be comfortable and i'm like i like being comfortable winners aren't comfortable ever <laughs> and i'm like okay i like morphed into please love me just stay comfortable in my hole in knoxville <laughs> i i morphed into like a momager somewhere i don't know what happened to me i don't know what the heck went down but either way i was we just some... need someone to come and literally put their foot up her ass like no i need someone to come and bitch slap me <laughs> and be like this is what you want like, edna pull yourself together this is all you've worked pull for stuff together literally that's how we were going yesterday and we're both, oh, that's not going to be able to work. You know, we're, we're looking at dates and times and prices and we're like, this ain't going to work. We're never going to work. And I looked down at my phone and it brightens up. One of you guys had DM'd us or liked a picture or something. And it says 444. 444. 444 on the dot. And so I look at Morgan, I pick it up and I'm like, 
I'm like, I know it's 444. Put it back down. <laughs> put it back down. And we're like, all right, like, let's, let's book look. It. Let's look it up. For let's the confirm. 17th time. What is 444? It's literally mean? on a merch thing that we launched. We're like, Google it one more time. Let's just confirm it. And it's like, you're on the right path. The angels are guiding you, saying that this is the one. Keep going forward. Your dreams are going to come true. They're Keep rolling. You. Everything that they you've been manifesting you. is being supported by your spirits, ancestors, and angel guides. We're like, are they sure, though? <laughs> oh, whatever. So then we pull our shit together and get on there and send an email and we're like all right these dates work <laughs> we can right, do this this really is really dramatic of us but okay so i had two things that i wanted to do it's a challenge for us for next week okay number one i want to see if we can go one single episode without bitching there's no way. Have we already done it this one? Yes and no. Like, what about bitching about like a really shitty person? No, 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 no. I just mean like personally complaining. Oh, I, yeah. I want to challenge us. And it's not even personally complaining. I want to challenge us to not complain, but like to not talk down about ourselves for at least one episode. And then we could see how long it takes us. I don't know. But we'll forget about it halfway through. Yeah, we're definitely we'll going to forget about it literally tomorrow. But that is our biggest vice, though. Like, yeah, a lot of people say that too. Is yeah, that we are always like, not that we're like, com- like crying whiners. Yeah, well, but like day. we really are like even off mic. Like, yeah, horribly we're beat ourselves rough. down. Like literally, we're <laughs> punching ourselves left and right every single second of the day. I mean, I wake <laughs> up, send a negative text about myself. Taylor wakes up, sends a negative text. I'm like, look before, at my f and eyelashes before bed. Negative, negative. Like it is bad. We, yeah, we should try it to is. do better. I think it's just because we're like feeling crazy and we just don't know what else to do. But it sounds bad. It's not good for our mental health. No, and we should try to do better. But like, I wake up, I have to say something bad about. Me. Yeah, I know. I don't know why we're like that. But maybe we should try to just say one good thing every morning. Okay, start the day off. We right. text each other. Yeah, <laughs> it's not gonna work. It's not gonna. We're happen. sarcastic assholes. Like, there's not a single text message from us that is actually like meaningful, other than like, "Hey, what time do you want to record?" That's the only one that actually comes from like a serious place. Everything else is really on my way. On my way. (laughs) Yeah. Like things that I've done. There's very, there's very rare conversations that we have that are actually serious. Cause if we're having a serious conversation, it's over the phone. Yeah. That's not on text. And even over the phone, we're not like, wow, like I woke up and I just felt so good today. I yeah. love the way I look. I loved everything about my morning. It went so well. I don't know how we reverse that unless we start doing it little by little. But what's crazy is one thing that we do very well for each other is we catch each other. Yeah. Like if I say something negative about myself, you're always like, no, I don't think that. Or, you know, make a joke about it. I'm like, no, but seriously. And the same for you. Like when you, I'm like, don't, t- don't say that. Like, no, I don't think that about you. Like, yeah. whatever. Like we always catch ourselves, but we're on a downward spiral. Like yeah. we hate ourselves. It's bad. It's really bad. We've done a really good job this episode of not going down a spiral of it yet, but we have discussed it. But I think we challenge ourselves for next episode and I'll put a, my, my, I have a bumpy on my head. My mama my, my, my under. I had one on my head the other day. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode. It hasn't even gone out yet at the time that we're recording this. So I don't even know what it is. Edward. No, I about said Edward Snowden. That's a case we should do. Yeah. 100%. What are we covering last week? Edgar Allan Poe. Oh. And part two. 
Part two of what? Miami Aerospace Academy. Yeah. Yep. Wow. That goes out tomorrow. Is today Wednesday? Yeah, because what's tomorrow? Wednesday. I got to post what's new Wednesday. It's posted. I meant the Instagram post. Oh, okay. Anyways, that's all. I'm really excited for today's episode because we're positive. We're, we're really excited. All right. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up and let's get creepy. Okay, Morgan, what do you have for us today? Okay, today I'm going to be talking about a place that's located in bumfuck nowhere, Tennessee. And this is the historic Old Brushy, standing for the Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. Opening in 1896 after the Coal Creek War. And the Coal Creek War was this armed uprising by these coal workers in Anderson County, Tennessee. Hmm. In 1891, the coal mine owners in Coal Creek Watershed began to remove and replace these employed miners, like they uh -huh. were just like your common day citizen, and replace them on payroll with convict laborers that were leased out by the Tennessee state prison system. So this prison lease system was adopted throughout most of the South because state governments couldn't afford to build and maintain prisons. And on top of that, they had to feed, give shelter, and clothe inmates. The answer to these issues was to cut costs and bring in money at the same time, AKA free labor. During this time, Tennessee began leasing, leasing prisoners to companies for work. What? Forcing many of their own residents out of jobs. These former wage-earning Coal Creek coal miners that lost their jobs were fucking pissed. Yeah. And they began to attack the penitentiary, and this is the Coal Creek War. Okay. They burned both state prisons and mine properties, all while releasing hundreds of state convict laborers from the prison system. <laughs> so so they like just went like full fucking ballistic. They're like, really? You're going to replace us. First off, you're going to lease out these people like they're a fucking object. Right. Like they're like they're not human beings so that you can still bring in money and not pay them for their work. You and we then all take just all lost of our, our jobs. jobs. So what are we going to do? We're going to burn your prisons down. We're going to let them go. Coal mining towns. The only purpose for someone to be there is if they, they are, are a coal miner. Right. And so they are a part of that entire community. Right. They run the stores. They own them. I mean, I could go on and on and on about coal I know, miners. Me too. Many of these same Coal Creek coal miners were also wounded or killed during the Coal Creek War, along with dozens of Tennessee state militiamen. The Coal Creek War ended with the arrest of hundreds of former company coal miners, but it also led to the downfall of the current governor, Buchanan. And this forced the Tennessee General Assembly to reevaluate their state convict labor leasing system. They knew that the cost of maintaining an army to defend the prison was way more expensive than just hiring the public back to work. Right. Like it just didn't outweigh what they were paying prior. So they expired the convict lease agreements and legislation passed to construct the state's first maximum security prison, a.k.a. giving birth to the Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. So basically, the governor fucking loses his job because he was the one that enforced it. And then the Tennessee General Assembly, with the help of a geologist, the location was picked for the prison. It was hidden. It was secure. It was isolated. And it was in the mountains. The prison sits in a rugged wooden terrain in the Cumberland Plateau mm -hmm. in the town of Petros in Morgan County, Tennessee. Petros. The Petros? Petros. Let me tell them about Petros. <laughs> okay, good. This is like a staple for Knoxville. You have to have it. If you ever come to a game, if you ever come by. It is a cup with chili, Fritos, 
or corn chips. And Fritos. the toppings, nonetheless, jalapeno, whatever sour you want, cream, whatever you can imagine. Cheese. It is fucking iconic. But let me tell you, make sure you eat it at least in the third quarter because <laughs> your stomach is your stomach will be ruined. But you can get it on like spuds, so like potatoes. You can get salads with the chili on it, and they pick whatever topping you want on it. And then they have this orange flavored sweet tea. Yeah, oh my I would drive to Petros right now. No, the way I would die for that right Send now. Send Logan. Oh my God, it's so good. And that I had a so wedge salad from there. I had a hot dog from there one time. It was pretty good. You want to hear something crazy? The last time I had Petros was the day that my first TikTok went viral. Really? We're going to Petros. We're going to Petros. We are going to Petros. We're I'll post going a- to Hollywood. We're going to Hollywood. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we're going to go to Petro's and then I'm going to come back and post a TikTok. The original prison was, this is funny, built by the prisoners themselves. So, yes, they <laughs> abolished the prison leasing system. But now they're like to the prisoners, well, you still have to build this. Well, us. you know who the prisoners are because they were arrested. It was the coal miners. Oh, yeah. It was exactly. their punishment. It was their punishment. They created this or built this winky like wooden structure. Like it was yeah. nothing 1800s superior. shit. It was then replaced in the 20s with this like castle superior building. So constructed from the stone that was mined by those prisoners on a quarry that sat on that prison property. So yeah, they upgraded to a new property, but the prisoners still built it. And on top of that, they also mined for the they supplies had to, go, to build it. <laughs> they had to go get the shit, then come and be forced to build it. Yeah. Prisoners were responsible for building a railroad, working the coal mines on site, operating the equipment and farming. In the beginning, it was rough and they got away with this because now the prison location was the mine. So Mm -hmm. they were no longer leasing out prisoners to just go work in the mines. Right. They built the prison on the fucking mine. They said, don't worry, it's all in-house. It's all all in-house. It's all inclusive. It's all in. It's an all inclusive resort. (laughs) All inclusive. Whatever you need going on here. In the beginning, it was rough between the ongoing violence, the deadly mining accidents that were very common back then. Chronic illnesses, life inside brushy was horrible. Well, yeah. And like to be a coal miner like that was passed down generation to generation because it was meticulous. It's Mm -hmm. like a very exclusive trade, though, like, you know, you could teach anybody to do it. But you if you're going to be a coal miner, you're taught from a really young age how yeah. to do this and the safety precautions because it saves money, it saves time and, and it you saves usually your life. start when you're 13 years old. Exactly. Going in the mine. Especially over here in Appalachia. Yeah. Exactly how it was. So now they have these people who have no fucking idea what they're doing down there. Well, half of them do because they all got arrested. Right. Half of, this. of them or were the coal miners. Yeah, but the other half, they don't know what they're doing. I can't yeah. imagine the amount of accidents that happen. Right. And on top of that, there were diseases everywhere. Tuberculosis, typhoid fever, pneumonia, syphilis. And none of these prisoners were receiving proper care and treatment for the diseases or for the accidents or for anything in general. They were expected to go about their daily duties, even if they did have pneumonia. And when they were, quote, underproducing because they were so sick, they were beaten for not doing a proper job. And as a result of this, many died. So, yeah, so they'll be sick as fuck with tuberculosis, but they're still going in the mines. And if you weren't producing the amount of money that you produced last month, you're fucking beat. Yeah. And also, I'm sure everybody now has tuberculosis because we're all down here. Right. Because no one's quarantining. Day and night, these men were working, mining for coal with no benefit, no worry about their physical health. It didn't matter. If you were in that prison, you worked. In 1931, Brushy housed 976 men, almost 300 more than its capacity. The state had an answer to this. Let's upgrade to that all holy castle-like structure. 
But oh, you as prisoners, you need to build it. The state constructed these plans for the new prison to be in a shape of the cross to aid in, quote, offering inmates a narrow path to redemption. That's a building that still stands today, the cross. This building was safer, it was more sanitary, but it didn't aid in the horror that went on there. By the 1950s, Brushy had the reputation as being, quote, the last stop for the worst criminals. And it was legendary. Like, they made a name for itself, not in a good way. Yeah. If you fucked up at your prison, you were sent to Brushy's. If you did the most horrific things, regardless of location, say you committed the most horrific crime in California, guess what? Chances were you were being sent to Brushies at this time. There was so much hate and death in this prison that they had a designated death house where they'd store the bodies of dead inmates until their family could come get them or until they could be buried at this makeshift cemetery up on top of the hill of the quarry. Oh my God, Morgan. They're just stacked in there. Their solitary confinement was known as the hole. And the hole was located in the basement of the laundry room. And it had this teeny, 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 tiny window that allowed on a super sunny day, just a couple rays of sunshine to shine through. I'm talking like probably the size of like that. Our our literal face. Yeah. Our literal eye holes. Yeah. It was tiny. They were fed one meal every couple days and their toilet was a bucket. Every couple days. Every couple days. In 1957, the hole was shut down and something called D-Block was opened. D-Block was the new and refined solitary confinement space, and it was to keep the most dangerous criminals away from the rest. And D-Block was built on the site of the old death house. No. Inmates were treated like animals, actually less than, and racism was horrifically at an all-time high. A constant fight between inmate and inmate by race along with the officers and inmates by race. Wow. In 2003, a former inmate named James Slagle went public speaking on his life at Brushy. He was 67 years old at the time. I'm not sure if he's still alive. I could not find it. But he had nearly spent half of his life in prison, even some time in D-Block. And he earned time in D-Block by attempting to escape. He was almost successful. Slagle had a 318-year sentence for kidnapping and drunkenly murdering a Tennessee man who tried to help him fix his car. (gasps) He pretty quickly picked up on how things worked around there. They were always told that no box large enough to hold a human was allowed to leave the facility. So, of course, his first thought was like, okay, well, how great would it be if I could cut myself into two, you know? Not Houdini. But like, obviously, he was no Houdini. He was no magician. So the next best thing to do was yoga. Oh, okay. For over a year, Slagle studied the art of yoga and contortion, learning to maneuver himself in like the weirdest yet most efficient shapes of a small box, basically. (laughs) Soon enough, he could fit into not one box, but a pair of boxes that he recalls being 18 inches high and 14 inches wide. But even if he could fit into those boxes and he was managed to escape, how would he get out once he's inside, outside the prison gates? How would he escape these big taped up boxes? Yeah. Well, his shoulders. He spent the same amount of time that he did yoga and contortion, building his shoulder strength to make them strong enough to just bust open through a box, right? And he did this. He built his shoulder strength by ramming his shoulder repeatedly against the concrete walls of the prisons daily. I'm sorry. You're trying to build muscle by literally by bruising your, bone. your bones. Like, I mean, if you aren't, if you're not shattering your bones, you have absolutely bruised them and right. like damaged your ligaments. Oh, he said that's how he got his strength. 
Okay. Okay. I'll try that one out. I'll let y'all know. I'll run an experiment. While while at the prison, he worked as a clerk in the dining room, and sometimes Brushy would ship food that inmates didn't finish to nearby facilities. With the help of five other inmates, he managed to contort himself into a pair of boxes labeled 153 pounds of roast beef. And he did this by cutting the bottom of the top box and the top of the bottom box. So it's stacked upon each other. He could fit in between both of them. But he was smart about this. The boxes weren't exactly on top of each other. He left room for them to just be a little bit off center. So like he was, you know, a little the bad. psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, the motherfucker's He's crazy. crazy. And before you know it, that 153 pounds of roast beef was placed onto a five ton flatbed truck surrounded by boxes of real food. And that truck left the facility. He then used his concrete wall shoulders to burst through the box and jumped off the truck. And he did that like diligently to make sure he jumped off right behind the truck bed so that the driver couldn't see him like in the, the mirrors yeah. or anything. And he like waited till they were out of sight and then he moved over. What? He thought he had done it. But unfortunately for him, this off-duty prison guard was nearby hunting rabbits. Of course. He sees him and he calls the warden and he's like, Hey, warden, did you issue, a, I guess, a walking pass for Slagle? Because he's like out here frolicking in the woods Yeah, right I just now. watched this man literally use his shoulders to break out of a roast beef box. So. Yeah, I just watched him use his concrete <laughs> shoulders. And then duck and roll off the back of a F-150. And then sit there. And now he's like very hyped that he just did it. And he's kind of, he's prancing. He's like, woo! Yeah, he's skipping yeah. around, prancing, frolicking through the woods. The well, bunnies are running away. Obviously, the warden's like, no, no, I didn't. Sure did not. So a whole search went out. Dogs, warden, multiple officers. And shortly after attempting to lose his trail. So he basically ran alongside the creek bed mm, smart. so that the dogs wouldn't catch up on his scent. But the, eventually the officers were like, OK, we know what he's doing. Just follow the fucking creek yeah, Just bed. everybody follow the creek. Because he's going to be up here somewhere. Yeah. He was caught and then he was thrown into the hole. Wow. He recalls the hole having only one roll of toilet paper, a pair of shorts, a stiff mattress, no sheets, blanket or pillow. There were two buckets in there, one for water and one used as a toilet. And he had a rock hard biscuit and a glass of milk. Once every three days. Oh, so much for that shoulder strain. Oh my God. Literally my worst nightmare. No, that sounds horrible. That sounds horrific. Unless it had sausage and cheese on it. Yeah. Definitely melted cheese. Lots of cheese. Oh, I like jelly on mine. I I can go with jelly, but I'm a ketchup bitch. Notoriously. Or mustard. I'm sorry. Or mustard. Mustard or jelly. I normally half it. Not mustard for me. Mm. Okay. So next to Slagle, there are other notoriously well-known for not good reason inmates. James Earl Ray is said to be the meanest one to walk Brushy's halls. And he was the man who assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1969. Ray arrived at Brushy in March of 1970 and wasn't there for a minute before he tried to escape. He failed. A year later, he removed a cinder block from his cell and managed to squeeze through the hole might have escaped if his path didn't run right into the prison steam plant where he would have cooked to death. So he had to turn around and go right back into his cell. Whoa. A year after that, he was caught by a guard after crawling with this makeshift saw and trying to cut his way out of an air vent. Oh, my God. In 1977, Ray and six others climbed over the wall using a 16-foot ladder made of pipe they found just, like, around the prison. (laughs) 
The FBI and the U.S. Marshals swarmed into Morgan County, Tennessee, and they were found two days later, only a couple miles away from the prison. Why are we still trying? Why are we trying? Like, there's nowhere to go. No, you can't. Where are you? Where? No, really though. Where are you gonna go? Yeah. Either way, you're. You've got mountain ranges on either side. Yeah. In 1981, three inmates stabbed Ray 22 times. Some say it was payback for the assassination. Others say it was one of Ray's schemes, a way to gain publicity again and a new trial because he was now claiming that he just did a false confession on the assassination. He wanted a new trial. He okay. falsely confessed. Mm -hmm. He left Brescia in 1992 and died at the state facility in Nashville in 98. Along with Ray was another evil man, Paul Dennis Reed. Do you know him? I recognize that name. I think you might. Reed was only 20 years old when he was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to 20 years in Texas. He served seven years and then he got out on parole, setting his sights on Nashville because he wanted to become a country music star. Okay, Mr. Reed. <laughs> okay, Mr. Reed. But he ended up washing dishes at Shoney's. <laughs> Shoney's? Shoney's. Shoney's. That's how it goes, babe. Where he was fired for throwing those dishes at other employees. <laughs> A day after this, February of 97, he went to a Captain D's down the road and forced a 16-year-old employee and a 25-year-old manager into the cooler. He then shot them to death and stole the money from the register. The following month, he killed three more employees from the McDonald's that was just three miles down the road from that Captain D's. A month after that, he drove an hour to Clarksville from Nashville, where he kidnapped and cut, sorry, trigger warning, I'm so sorry, kidnapped and cut the throats of a 21-year-old and a 16-year-old working at a Baskin-Robbins. He then left their bodies in the state park in Dunbar Cave. He was known as the fast food killer. Yeah. And evil deserves a piece of brushy in their lives. Yeah. He ended up there until the facility closed down and transferred to Morgan County Correctional Complex, dying in 2013 from pneumonia. Brushy Mountain State Park closed on June 11, 2009. In 2018, it was reopened to the public for tours, private events, concerts where you can see ghosts, listen to music, and you can go to their distillery for some moonshine. Honestly, we should go. What? Uh, that sounds like <laughs> creeps and crimes. Creeps and crimes, yeah. Yeah. And drinks. Are you kidding me? <laughs> of course, Brushy, with an extreme amount of history and horror, is haunted. Hell yeah. One of the most famous ghosts is an inmate named Jack Jett. Jack was, and I looked up the proper way to say this, and this it said it was the proper term, a little person. It just feels wrong. Little person, yeah, that's the correct term. Yeah, and while in prison, he had the reputation of a snitch. One evening, while he was making a call to his mother on one of the prison phones, he was stabbed multiple times in the back of the neck and bled to death. Afterwards, inmates reported seeing the phone levitating off the hook and then like clicking back into its spot. Today, the phone area is said to have cold spots and people just feel dread just standing there. What was once considered a sanctuary of the prison is now one of the most haunted parts of the entire site. And this is the prison chapel. EVP recordings within the chapel are some of the most active to be found anywhere throughout the prison. While visiting the chapel, paranormal groups have captured words like hell, beast, and pain inside the chapel. Some believe the EVPs are just part of like this leftover sermon, while others believe that it's the inmates that died there speaking of like their current situation, that they're in hell, basically. I say both. I kind of am with the sermon. Like yeah. they're picking up pieces of past. Former inmates have told stories of seeing objects in the chapel area mysteriously float across the room, as well as cold spots that occurred even on the hottest days of the summer. And of course, the hole is piping hot with activity. 
floating light orbs have been seen there. And given the fact that there is no natural light besides the tiny little block, it makes the orbs just a little bit more believable. The orbs seen are not white and yellow in color, which often will indicate like more gentle spirits, but instead they're either purple or red, which means whatever is in there is evil and aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Run for your life. Yeah. Audio recordings have also picked up the sound of footsteps and whispers within the solid the whole area as well. Noises are very common throughout the prison with lots of reports of voices, doors slamming, footsteps when no one is around. And then there are the scariest reports of all, those of the physical attacks. A number of people have been touched, scratched, choked, and even made to feel physically sick within the Brushy Mountain prison. Visual phenomena is also said to be extremely common. Many see these like shadowy figures like lurking around the halls while others have spotted apparitions that often resemble people. And then there are a select few have sighted entities that do not seem to be of human nature, such as one who seems to creep along the floors and another that has been described as a part goat slash part man and has these hooves. No. It's along the floor. Not this creepy crawling. But maybe that's just Geronimo. Who's Geronimo? Geronimo was the prison pet. <laughs> a young deer. Deer? Baby, a baby deer fell off the cliff into the yard at Brushy. And the inmates loved him. Aww. They decided to keep him, naming him Geronimo because of how it Geronimoed <laughs> into the prison yard. He was a chill pet. But his main diet was cigarettes. He loved to chew unlit cigarettes. Right. Six inside the walls kind of guy. <laughs> Six inside. Brushy was shut down from 72 to 75 because of labor disputes and, and then it reopened. But the inmates were moved to Nashville during that time. And Geronimo had stayed behind until the inmates voted to move Geronimo to Nashville's prison. So the state paid to move this deer to Nashville to be with the inmates. <laughs> but Geronimo had like a lot of trouble adjusting to a new a city boy life new, instead of yeah. Bushy Mountain. Yeah. And the Nashville warden said that the deer would throw like temper tantrums. And one time an inmate's face was scratched by the deer and he had had to get stitches. And when that prisoner was taken to the hospital, he actually escaped for a little bit. <laughs> My God. He, he, Geronimo did not do that to him. Yeah, I know Geronimo did it. No, Ger- Geronimo did not. But Geronimo's days behind bars ended when he broke his leg and had that limb had to be amputated. Oh, but. And we are unsure where Geronimo spent the rest of his life, but we know that he still lives on in the hearts of the inmates and the guards at Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. Yeah, he's just chilling. And that's all I have. I loved it. I loved, well, I love Geronimo. I love Geronimo. I love Geronimo. The sick smoking. Yeah, Rose literally. An the sick eating, I mean. Yeah, he literally, they're like, we need Geronimo here. Yeah. That's our and emotional support. Like, okay, I mean, the state literally moved the deer from <laughs> this prison to Nashville. That's and he's like, you know, city life really ain't for me, actually. No, and he's like having freak outs. Yeah. And I bet it was because he was like, they left me. Yeah. They literally left me. I actually know a family back home, one of my dad's good friends. They have pet deer. Really? Yeah, they raise them. I have a pet possum. But they're kind of, they can be like, because they're not domestic. No. So they can be like, they can't attack. But I think Geronimo was loyal. You know what I have to say about Geronimo? Sounds like Ophi. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Horrific. Hated it. Loved Geronimo. Yeah. I mean, it was a really fucked up place. We've got to go do a... A thing there. I mean, they have like literally they'll host like private events, concerts. Like, oh, who wants to go to a concert at the prison? Wait, what if we had our first live show there at Brushy Mountain? And tours are actually really expensive. It's like $170 a person. 
Oh, we could tours. swing a But they deal. do flashlight tours, so it's at nighttime. Only. Oh, I would like to do that. I don't want to do that. I'll go to the distillery. We'll bring Susan with us. We'll go get drunk, and then we'll go on. A, no, we'll definitely get possessed. And so we live, obviously, what what, what is this? Would you say an hour and a half away? Oh, yeah. And not Give maybe not even. Yeah. And I had never heard about this place until Sabrina and Corinne mentioned yeah. it to us. They're like, you guys live, ne- you guys live next to Brushy. Yeah. We gotta go. We gotta go. I had no idea about it. I had so. no idea either. Shout yeah. out to them. Yeah. But and I can't believe I didn't have any idea. I mean, I feel like I've heard about it, but I've never like actually looked into it. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Really appreciated cool. it. Thanks. Welcome. Thanks. Miss you, Geronimo. Hope you're doing well. Love you, Jerome. Okay, so the case I have for you guys today, I'm just going to jump right into. On January 12th, 1981, a dog ran into a wooded, boggy area on the north end of Harris County, Texas, which is Houston. After what felt like forever for the owners, but was probably just a few minutes, the dog finally returned and it was carrying something in its mouth. I would have been losing my mind just running away. Yeah. The owner was really confused at trying to compute like what exactly their dog was running towards them with. And it was the last thing they would have ever expected. The dog was carrying a heavily decomposed human arm. (gasps) The owner immediately called the police and search teams rushed to the home where the dog led them, literally led the entire search team exactly where he had found it. And they find two heavily decayed bodies, one belonging to a male and the other belonging to a female. Investigators began referring to these bodies as Jane and John Doe, or the Harris County Does. We'll, I'll kind of go back and forth talking about them. They were discovered near Wallaceville Road, lying within feet of one another. The coroner determined that they had likely been dead from anywhere between a few weeks to a few months, but specifically they narrowed it down to two months. The deaths of Jane and John Doe were quickly ruled an obvious homicide. An autopsy showed that Jane Doe had been beaten and strangled to death, and the male had been bound and gagged before being beaten to death by their attacker. But based off of the findings in the autopsy, the medical examiner's office began referring to Jane and John Doe as Romeo and Juliet because it was clear that the woman had been attacked first and the male fought off the attacker to try and save the woman. Oh my God. It could not be officially determined if the location where the bodies were found were where they had been murdered, but they were able to find a few pieces of evidence nearby or what they considered to possibly be connected to these crimes. It was a bloodied towel and then a pair of gym shorts. So it could have just been there. They don't really know. And again, this is 1981. So there's not a ton of testing that they can do to determine if it was. Though both John and Jane Doe were heavily decomposed with John Doe being partially skeletonized, their faces were still semi-recognizable. Because of this, they were able to reconstruct a composition of their faces, so like a profile of what they might have looked like. Many, many years passed, and no one claimed John and Jane Doe as their missing loved ones. There were no leads. There were no missing reports of individuals that matched their descriptions, like a couple even, like nothing. There was nothing in this area or nearby. And 30 years go by. 
In 2011, Harris County received a grant from the National Institute of Justice. This allowed them to exhume 30 to 40 unidentified murder victims in order to extract their DNA and enter it into the DNA databases. This included the Harris County Does or John and Jane Doe. In July of 2011, both of the bodies were exhumed and their DNA was uploaded into CODIS. But unfortunately, there were no matches at the time, meaning that none of their direct surviving family members had ever uploaded their DNA. And this is before, for some reason, it's not coming back to my head exactly what the name of the system is. But basically, it's only if you know of this system, A, and B, if you have a missing persons report that's gone on for a certain amount of time and the police will direct you to them. Okay. So Later on, whenever Ancestry.com became a thing, they then began to merge the Ancestry.com databases with the CODIS databases. And this was for the unidentified murder victims, but also for like evidence that was found where DNA was able to be extracted and you can find who the murderer was in cases. Right, yeah. Extending that database. Exactly. And this is really controversial because it's like, okay, well, is that all you're doing with the DNA? I get that side of it, but what this does for the crime community and the advancements and the ability to solve cases is like amazing. And so I have nothing negative to say about it. And trust me, if they wanted your yeah. DNA, they got it. Yeah, <laughs> they've got it. They got it, babe. Either way, this begs the question, did their family members even know that they were missing? The only other option would be to do genealogical research, but this was an extremely expensive task that the Harris County did not have the funds for. So they really just had to hope for the best that maybe they would someday get a DNA match, like maybe they would be reported missing or a family member would just do it one day hoping, who knows. Years go by and Harris County gets this phenomenal opportunity provided by crime junkie and audio truck no way ashley flowers learned of this case and she and her team funded everything that they needed to do the genealogical research wow yeah that's so crazy i wish we could do that one day one day we will so forensic genealogist misty gillis and allison peacock used the genetic database gen match for their entire investigation into john and jane doe through this, they were able to trace John Doe's DNA to distant family members in Kentucky. They followed this lead to an even closer match of a male. And this led them to a woman named Debbie Brooks in 2021. Gillison Peacock called Miss Brooks and asked her if she had a family member that had gone missing 40 or more years ago. Debbie was absolutely stunned. This was the last call that she was ever expecting, but she quickly managed to utter out her words, yes, my brother, Dean Klaus. They had found the identity of John Doe, but what about Jane? So they asked Debbie, would he have been with a woman? In shock, Debbie says, yeah, his wife, Tina. They explained to Debbie that unfortunately, both Tina and Dean had been murdered and told the entire story of the discovery that we just went through. Debbie was absolutely crushed to learn this devastating news as both Tina and Dean's family truly believed that they had gone missing on their own accord, like they had chosen to go missing all those years ago. But then it was Debbie's turn to shock Gillis and Peacock when she asked, well, what about their baby, <gasps> Holly? Where's Holly? The team was absolutely stunned. They had no idea that there was any 
child involved in this at all. So they called the Harris County investigators that had handled this case for 40 years at this point and were like, was there any children that you've ever recovered? What happened to 21-year-old Dean, 17-year-old Tina, and their almost one-year-old daughter, Holly? So young. 40 years ago. Baby. All of them. 21, 17, one. Not even one. And for all this time, they've had Tina and Dean, but they never had Holly. Holly. They even know of Holly. My God. Right. So in 1978, 19-year-old Dean Klaus and 15-year-old Tina Lynn were living in New Smyrna Beach, Florida. Tina's brother and Dean's sister were actually dating at the time and were getting really, really serious. They later on married. So whenever they started getting like really serious, they introduced their families to each other. And this is where Dean and Tina first met. Many describe this as the typical love at first sight, but it turned into a whirlwind of a romance. Just a year later, on June 25th, 1979, the two got married at the Volusia County Courthouse, and six months later, they had their first child together, their daughter, Holly Marie Klaus. She was born on January 24th, 1980. Tina and Dean were obsessed with Holly so in love with her. She was their entire world. Everyone around them knew that their purpose in life was to love each other and to be parents to Holly. Tina and Dean loved being surrounded by their family, but knew that they wanted a fresh start. So they moved in with Tina's sister until they could find their dream home. Dean was a carpenter and he was very, very talented at his job, but there just wasn't much opportunity for him to grow and provide the amount that he wanted to and needed to for his family in Florida. So at this point in time, the Dallas-Fort Worth area was rapidly developing and there was a high demand for construction due to this massive boom. Dean could see a very profitable future for his family there, and he was offered a year-round decent-paying job in Louisville, Texas, which is just outside of Dallas, with D.R. Horton Home Builders. And the family decided to take this opportunity. They were going to move in with Dean's cousin that lived there at the time while they saved up enough money to get their own place. Their families were so excited for them and like 100% supported this, though they were really sad because their brand new grandbaby was about to move away and their kids, they knew that this was going to be an awesome opportunity for the family. Everyone was pumped, but it was the getting there that was the issue, not only because they had a maybe four month old at this point in time, but because the couple did not have a car to get there. Well, Dean's mother, Donna, told them like, hey, I want this for you. I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm going to let you take my 1978 red AMC Concorde that she just bought. And you can return it whenever you have enough money to buy yourself a car. Just drive here, drop it off, drive back in your new car. And they were off. Like, it was just perfect. That's how much their family supported them. Yeah. In the summer of 1980, Tina and Dean packed up their lives and they moved to Louisville, Texas to begin their new journey. Tina and Dean's relationship was as strong as ever, even though they were working tons of hours and cutting as much spending as possible in order to save. Clearly, this was a tough move, leaving their family behind and raising a not even one-year-old baby girl. But they stayed connected because that's what made them feel better. Tina wrote their family, both families, and sent photos of Holly, sometimes like multiple times a week. 
They gushed over how big she had gotten, asking all of the typical grandparent questions and loved their extremely frequent pictures. Aww. But in October of that year, the letters abruptly stopped arriving. The family found this really weird and it worried them a little bit, but they just kind of figured like, hey, they're busy, they're working long hours, maybe they have new friends, so they're hanging out with them, getting settled, saving money, whatever. You know, there's a lot of reasons why and they didn't want to seem overbearing, but Tina did not mention anything prior in any of her letters about a need for a sudden stop. So they just hoped for the best, expecting a letter or a response to come soon, continuing to send theirs. Either at the very end of 1980 or the very beginning of 1981. And the timeline in this case, because it's so old and you'll understand here in like literally five seconds why, there's just not a lot of record of everything that goes down. So everything's pretty much based off of memory, which makes this part really, yeah. really hard. It's either the very end of 1980 or the very beginning of 1981. Donna, Dean's mom, receives a call from this woman. And she introduces herself as Sister Susan. Okay. And she tells Donna, Dean and Tina and Holly have joined our nomadic religious group. We're really happy. Everybody's pumped. But they're giving up all of their belongings, all their possessions. They're giving them all up. We just want to let you know they're giving up contact, all their things, whatever. Now, this is fucking concerning. Right. Clearly and shocking. But this wouldn't be the first time that Dean had joined a religious movement. Two years before meeting Tina, Dean was involved or a member of the Jesus People movement. This was a movement that was born in the 1960s in the southwest of America. Many people involved in leading this movement or founding it claimed that they had supernatural abilities. Okay. They had specific gifts from God. They were chosen ones. And it was founded by a man, the leader, Charles McHugh. But he went by Lightning Amen. I'm sorry. Lightning Amen. Lightning McQueen. Lightning amen. McQueen. Ka-chow. Ka-chow. That's exactly what he says. And his partner, Tomater. <laughs> Tomater and Lightning Amen. Lightning, amen. amen. The God of thunder. They'd be like, how the are you God doing of today? Lightning. lightning, amen. But, you know, that was just like a, a loving name for him, lightning, amen, because truly his name was Jesus Christ. Oh. Yeah, he's a re-embodiment. Oh, good thing. Of course. Members, because of this, referred to each other as brother and sisters in Christ. Lightning, amen. Brothers so and sisters So they all lightning. legally changed their last name to Christ. So Dean leaves home to go live and be on the road with this nomadic religious movement called the Jesus People Movement. His family's pissed that he's doing this. And fast forward a few years. So just before he meets Tina, I don't know how many months exactly. It's not really well recorded anywhere. But either way, he calls his parents from wherever he had traveled to with this Jesus People Movement and says, hey, like, I want to leave. Can you buy me a ticket home? And they're like, hell yeah. Come on. Yeah, get your ass home. And he gets home and he's like completely normal again. He begins working, working on his carpenting, like meets Tina, fall in love, Holly. So let's go back to Sister Susan. Donna had a really bad feeling about Sister Susan. Yes, this was Dean's MO. He's done it before, but something was off. So she entertains the conversation and began asking Sister Susan, well, that's crazy because that fucking car is mine. I loaned it to them. Right. So if you're taking a belonging, then you better drive that right on back to me. Exactly. So after many confused questions and answers and concerned <laughs> statements, I'm pretty sure, Sister Susan says, well, look, you can have it back. Like, we're not going to steal it from you. You can have it back. 
Hell, I'll even bring it to you, but it'll cost you 1,000 buckaroonies. Okay. And this is a huge chunk of cash in general, but in 1980-81. Right. And I'd also say, what am, exactly am I paying you for? Because it's mine. To drive it there. Okay. So Don is like, this sounds fucking weird. It sounds like a scam. But she wanted to meet Sister Susan. She wanted to see who Sister Susan was. So she agrees to it. She conjures up the money. She gets friends and family to pitch in because they needed to see who Sister Susan was. So Sister Susan says, look, I'm going to meet you in a few days in the parking lot of the Daytona racetrack, and I'll be there at midnight. I'll meet you there, bring the cash, and I'll bring the car. So, of course, Donna relays all of this to the police and tells them everything that went down. What happened when they moved, when the letters start, stopped coming, the no contact, Sister Susan, her fucking weird vibes, and the Daytona parking lot on this date, and we got to be there at midnight. That's what they said. And I got to bring $1,000 and they're allegedly going to bring me my car. So the police are like, okay. What? Was she going to run it on the track? Would she need to be there? <laughs> Why? Okay. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you're good. It? You know, thanks for the report. But of course, there was some pushback from the police because of Dean's past. So Don is like, yes, this has happened to my son before. But I know something is off. I know he wouldn't put Tina in that and situation Holly. and especially Holly. And plus, she just knew in her gut, it was her mama instincts, something was wrong. And that was that. A few days later, as promised, Sister Susan pulls up, parking lot, midnight. But she was not alone. With her, there were two to three other women and maybe one man. But it was really dark. They could not say for sure. And the exchange went good. The car was in good condition. It was her car. Everything that was left in it was were still in there. Were they like dressed like nuns or? I guess like sisters. Sisters. Hell yeah. So that's what it was. Okay. They gave the money and Sister Susan and the other four hit the road, bitch. I would have followed their asses all the way back to Texas. Now, because of this, police dropped the case. Saying like, look, it all seems legit. It was a fair and agreed upon exchange. It didn't seem like it was like a culty vibe. But even if it was, it really did seem like your family members did join a cult. If that was yeah. the case. So what are we going to do? Especially in this time period, too. Cults are so common. Exactly. Or religious movements. Yeah. But nothing really bad or suspicious happened also during this exchange. So there was nothing they could really go on. Now, there are some reports that say police questioned sister susan and the other people that she was with really because uh, allegedly in these reports they pulled up like police were there the entire time and facilitated the exchange but there are no there's no proof of this so years and years and years go by no communication from tina or dean nothing about holly families are really confused and they're freaking out but specifically they're freaking out about holly at this point why would you out of nowhere take holly out of their lives so suddenly stop all contact. Like, it just wasn't right. Yeah. And after some time had passed, both Tina and Dean's families tried to file missing persons reports, like, almost yearly. But every time, every single one of them were denied. Police explained this away with the fact that they were consenting adults. Everything went smoothly with the car. And Dean had done it before. Plus, it's literally happening all the time. Every other family is coming in with these same reports. They joined a Oh, they were jo they joined a religious movement. Right. Yeah. And it was common. So it was like, 
what are we going to do? Right. Tina and Dean's families never stopped losing hope because at some point they just had to force themselves to believe that they had and there's nothing they movement. could do. Exactly. They ex- exhausted they, all They options. truly are thinking like they chose to do this. Right. Maybe just maybe one day they'll show up on our front door. They'll call home, send us a letter or something. They just held on to that hope for 40 years until they received that call about John and Jane Doe. When they got this call, it was soul crushing because once again, they had to grieve the loss of Tina, Dean and Holly all over. But they still had a sliver of hope left, praying that Holly would be found someday in some way. In January of 2022, the official search for Holly began. Dean and Tina's families founded the Hope for Holly Foundation, leading the entire search and created an age-progressed photo of what Holly would look like in 2022. Wow. Many women who had similar stories to Holly's about, you know, being adopted, not knowing anything about their lives, the areas that it would have been in, came forward and submitted their DNA for screening months go by. It's now June 7th, 2022, Dean's 63rd birthday, and they receive a call that changed their lives. Oh, my God. They found Holly. 42 years later. Oh, my God. She was 42 years old. She has five kids and at the time, two grandbabies. Now, out of respect for her privacy, which she has requested to be at her discretion as she remains for the most part out of the media, that's really all I'm going to talk about her. All that we do know about her life that's been made public prior to being discovered in connection as baby Holly was that she was dropped off at a church in Arizona by two women who claimed to be a part of a nomadic religious family. And she was dropped off around the same exact time that Tina and Dean would have been murdered, which was also around the same time that the car would have been returned to Donna. Wow. The night that Holly was confirmed to be baby Holly, with the help of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, she was introduced to both Tina and Dean's family members for the very first time since she moved to Texas on a Zoom call. And it was an amazing reunion. As for the case of Tina and Dean and Holly, it is open and it is being investigated. It is believed that the nomadic religious group is either responsible for the murders of Tina and Dean or know who did it and was covering for them. It is speculated that if Tina and Dean did join the cult, maybe they tried to leave, therefore they were murdered for whatever reason, or maybe they had joined the cult, saw something that they were not supposed to see, or maybe they didn't join it at all and witness something that they were not supposed to witness because at the time with many religious groups like this in the area, specifically this area of Houston and Dallas, there was a lot of these groups that were involved in drug and child trafficking. Yeah, I was just about to say a lot of yep. a lot of these groups also like to take children, mm-hmm. specifically very premature babies, yep. one to three years old, so they can raise them under their beliefs their, mm-hmm. and create their cult stronger and lightning. Amen. Yeah. Lightning. Amen. Lightning, so, amen. So maybe they did take Holly and yeah. wow, that's crazy. It's fucking awful. So once they found out that there was a daughter involved, they wondered if not only was Dean trying to protect Tina, which led to his death, maybe also fight Holly. for Holly to get Holly back. They took her away. 
Yeah. The police are looking for anyone that knew of a Sister Susan during this time in these areas or anyone that would fit her description, her MO, or anything fucking about this crazy girl. Lightning. Sister Lightning is you her name. If you have any information, you lose the ability to be called Susan. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sacred name. So they're asking for anybody that would possibly have known of a sister Susan, anything like her, to come forward at this time, as well as any information about religious groups in this area that could possibly be connected. The investigation into the murders of Holly's biological parents, Tina and Dean Klaus, is an ongoing investigation. And if anyone has any information about their deaths, please contact the Texas Attorney General's Cold Case and Missing Persons Unit at, this is an email, by the way, Cold Case Unit at oag.texas.gov that's a case wow yeah it's just so hard to like guess what did happen to them because yeah. cults were so in religious movements mm -hmm. were just so prominent during that time period there's so fucking many of them yeah and like you said all obsessed with different things whether it was god or drugs or ch right. children or music or you know it was all and it makes you wonder like how many other like manson family cults right. were going on at the time right because if you're killing you're automatically and to try but part of me at first thought why would they drive a car from texas to florida as like uh if we give it back they won't think anything twice or did they never leave florida no or they left it because they were there he went to work they like they in, were in Texas. They were in Texas. Like it is confirmed that they were in Texas okay. for, from the summer to October. They were there. Okay. And plus everything was like postmarked, stamped, all that jazz there as well. It's just like a lot. And to be so precise without a time, without GPS, mm -hmm. we'll be there at midnight meet here. Like it, it's just, right. a, it's interesting. It is really interesting. That meetup I think has more leads than what I they, think the meetup might have been a ransom also mm -hmm. because police weren't as involved, which right. you can't even fault them at this point because I feel like, I mean, you can't, yes, they should have done more. They should have done more because there was a child involved. Yes, absolutely. Like, because yes, there was a child involved. Yes, they were consenting adults, but that child was not. Exactly. And it's about the well-being of the child at that point. And the fact that because police would never allow them to report them at least missing, like what is it going to hurt you to if we report them missing? All it would have done would allow them to put their DNA in that database and it wouldn't have taken 42 years to find all of them. Right. Yeah. But if they would have been able to report them missing, then they could have reported them missing not only in Florida, but in Texas in the place that they were located. Yeah. And it would have been well known. Do you know how old Holly was when she showed up at the church doorsteps did it say it or was that private? it was around the same time so it would have been either be end of 80 80 beginning of 81 so she would have been about to turn one year old okay yeah not even a year old yet wow that's a crazy fucking case yeah i don't think it's like four cases and i one. never say this but i don't think it'll ever get solved but i also think that if they in this section in this movement that if they were super religious and they do care about the well-being of people obviously maybe not because two ended up dead but i feel like maybe somebody would have been whoever decided to turn holly over might have been following up with her throughout her life that 100 percent, or this could be a deathbed situation mm -hmm. like maybe one day it, yeah, you'll find it in a journal entry like that is the only there's no it's because there's no evidence. There's no DNA. There's a very sparse it, it, timeline. So private. Those it is. They're so private. But I feel like with Crime Junkie, Audio Chalk being involved, there's got to be more mm -hmm. than what is publicly known at this point. 
which is fine because you need to keep things absolutely for cases like this to themselves but it's just mind-blowing to me yeah wow yeah Good and case. i'm sorry i feel like there was a lot more i could have been able to to look up and go off on but i was afraid that if i did it i wouldn't be able to keep you on the main timeline of it i know there's a lot more trust me i looked at reddit scared to death there's a lot more Ooh. there's a ton of theories it was a really good case sounds like connections nonetheless made. yeah it has a decent ending mm -hmm. the fact that holly is now being able to be reunited right. with both teen dean and tina's families but the fact that their case remains unsolved and that Holly they went 40 years. I mean, imagine knowing. Holly learning about this. Right. And I wonder what the things were that tipped her off. Like, maybe I need to go submit my DNA for this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm curious, too. Maybe it was the nomadic religious movement that. Yeah. Just those words were triggering because yeah. she knew that's all she knew. Right. And. That's only by word of mouth. Like my dad was surrendered at a church when he was adopted. He was given as a safe haven to a church. There's no paperwork. Right. Just drive him off at the church. And then whenever he got the clearance, and it wasn't until I believe he was 18 to be legally adopted because his biological mother would never sign off on it. Mm -hmm. So, but he still legally changed his name. So there's just no fucking paperwork right. involved. Oh, we had no idea where my dad's damn birth certificate was. We had to go to the state capitol and get it. It's crazy. Yeah insane i wonder what do they do for children that like you can't find the birth parents you do they create a birth certificate for them or i believe they do create a birth certificate but i i think it's like an estimate right wow. like how you take your puppy to the vet and it's like we think or you, you yeah. just rescued a dog they're like we think it's it would have been a spring letter yeah. yeah yeah i'm sure like i'm sure it becomes more apparent over time so it's probably not finalized mm-hmm that's really interesting. I'm sure if they can track down like the area, they would be able to go to the hospital and see what babies were born that day. But if the baby wasn't born in a hospital. Right. Oh, my God. Someone answer us about this. I'm really concerned now. Yeah. I'm sure they just make one. Right. Probably. Pick your birthday. Yeah. What birthday you want? <laughs> okay, guys. Love you. <laughs> Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye.